Well, today we come to the fifth and final chapter of the book of 1 Peter. So go ahead and open your Bibles there if you haven't already. And since chapter 5, Peter is uh, wrapping up here his first epistle, and, and this chapter is only 14 verses long. So with that in mind, the, the Holy Spirit laid it upon my heart that we should go back and just do a quick review of the first four chapters before finishing out this book. So go ahead and open your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 3, chapter 1, I'm sorry, 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to look at verse 3. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, if you remember back about a month ago when we studied this chapter, we talked about the phrase there, begotten us again, uh, in verse 3. That word again there is a word that means to be born again, to be born anew. So Peter is saying here, the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Peter is saying here that we have been born again to a living hope. And that living hope came through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And we've talked about that in times past. And of course, we studied the resurrection on Easter Sunday. But, um, you know, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the main event. Okay. And very, very important event, event for us all. And verse 3 also tells us that God did all of this because of or according to his abundant mercy. So God's abundant mercy gave us his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, who was crucified, dead, and buried. But he rose again from the dead, and that now gives us a living hope. So we've been born again, and then verse 4 says, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. So Peter here is pointing out the fact that something so much better now awaits us. We have an incorruptible and an undefiled inheritance reserved for us in heaven. For now, we have this hope as we walk by faith. And verse 5 continues and says, Who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So we are kept by the power of God through faith. Uh, we've seen it time and time again as we've gone through the epistles of Paul, right? That we must continue in the faith. We must hold fast our confession till the end. We must not waver in our faith. And as we do continue in that faith, we are then kept by the power of God. And in verse 13, jump down to verse 13, it says, therefore, okay, so with all of this in mind, right? Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
So this is telling us again to keep going, to stay the course of faith, stay focused on Jesus Christ all the way till the end, till his second coming. Live in a manner that indicates that you are not earthly focused, but rather you are heavenly minded or heavenly focused. Right? And verse 14 says, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance. Remember, any one of us can conform back to the lust of the flesh. So the Holy Spirit, again, through the Apostle Peter here, warns us not to do this, not to go back in that direction. If you've been born again, don't go back to living in a way you used to live, right? What are we to do instead? Verse 15 says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Okay? That word conduct there is your manner of life, the way you live. Be holy in your conduct. As, as I have uh, pointed out time and, and time again to you from the scriptures over the last several weeks especially, we are indeed called to live in holiness. And we should conduct our lives in a holy manner. And holiness would be opposite, of course, of conforming to the lust of your flesh. Then down in verse 22, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. So again, when a person truly comes to Jesus Christ, when a person truly is born again, they are purified by obedience to the truth. Do you see that there? Purified by obedience to the truth. And you also see there in verse 22 that this purifying takes place, it says, through the Spirit. Okay, So this is the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a person that has been born again of the Spirit. Okay, It is His life, His work, excuse me, in our lives that purifies us through the Word of God. But again, we must live a holy life here on this earth. We must not conform to the lust of the flesh. We can't turn back. We must keep going by faith till the end, okay, when Jesus Christ is revealed. Now, what is it that causes all of this to take place in our hearts? Now, I already alluded to it there a minute ago. I said it's the Word of God. Look at verse 23. Having been born again, not of corruptible Seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. So this is how a person is born again, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Okay, The word of God is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. You've heard me quote that verse time and time again, right? That's the power of the word of God. And that's why it's so important that we study the Word of God. And that's why I take you through the Word of God like this, right? Verse 24, Because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away, but the Word of the Lord endures forever. Now, this is the Word which by the Gospel was preached to you. 
So we see here that the Holy Spirit, again, through Peter, tells us that the word endures forever. And in verse 25, he makes it very clear that what he's talking about is the gospel. We must continue in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must first receive it ourselves in our own hearts, right? And then we must live it out. We must live in that holiness and walk in accordance with the word of, of the Lord, the word of the gospel. And then we must teach that gospel to others and share it with others. Then in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. So we see here that the word of God purifies our souls and the word of God causes us to grow. So we are to mature in the word and we should study it cover to cover in order that we may be purified by it and continue to grow in the knowledge of the Lord. Right. And the person that has been purified is a person that has laid aside those things that are listed there in verse 1. And we talked in depth about those things in that list back when we studied this chapter. Now, of course, all of this assumes that a person has been born again. Look at the word if there at the beginning of verse 3. It says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. So let me pause right there because you see, a person does not fully understand the grace of God. A person does not fully understand the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives until they have come to a place in their own hearts where they recognize that they themselves are a sinner in need of a Savior. And when they do, they repent. And then and only then do they taste that the Lord is gracious. They come to that understanding at that point because they come to a place where they surrender and they give up and they say it's not going to be about me anymore it's not going to be about the lust of my flesh anymore you know penny and i were talking about this this week it's kind of sad but often when you think of the word lust you just think of sex right but lust the lust of the flesh is 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 anything where you are living your life based on your own desires and it's about you and it's about what you're chasing after it could be work it could be money it could be boats or cars it could be all kind of things there's all kind of things that our flesh lusts after but when a person comes to the place of being born again they come to receive that gospel and, and they, they grow in the grace and in the knowledge of the Lord, it's at that point that they have tasted that the Lord is gracious. It now means so much more to them. It's something they taste within, deep within their soul, right? And then verse 4 continues, coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. So again, when a person comes to realize that uh, they're following Jesus, they realize they're following a living God. They're not following a dead man. I said this back when we studied chapter 2, but Confucius, Muhammad, Joseph Smith, Charles Russell, all these people are dead. All these people found it 
religions or, or had followings, right? But they're all dead. And following Jesus is not like following the teachings of other men or women. He is a living God. He rose from the dead and there is none like him. He was rejected by men and today still is rejected by many people. But he was chosen by God and precious, as the end of verse 4 there says. And by his spirit and through the purifying power of his word, he is doing a work within our hearts. Verse 5 says, you also as living stones. You see, we too are now spiritually alive. Why? Because of Christ in us. And verse 5 continues and tells us that we are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, right? So this is another way we're being told how we should be living. This is what we are in Jesus Christ, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. This is the work that, that by His Holy Spirit and through His Word, He is accomplishing this in our lives. And what are we to be doing? We are to be offering up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's how we should be living our lives. And we went in depth on the topic of spiritual sacrifices when we covered this chapter some weeks back as well. But now let's jump forward into chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It says, Wives, Likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. So we didn't look at it today, but at the end of chapter 3, Peter, through the Spirit, he got on the topic of submission. And we were encouraged to submit to governmental authorities that are looking out for righteousness. We are to be submissive to good government, right? We are to be submissive to our vocational bosses, to managers and things like that, right? We are to understand that Christ is our example. Ultimately, he is the, the shepherd and the overseers of our soul, and we do everything unto his glory. And now in chapter 3, Peter began to address this portion of his epistle here to wives. And he says, in this same manner, wives be submissive to your husbands. You see, as we discussed at length in weeks past, when a wife is submitted to a godly husband, this has an impact on non-believers around us. They will see the conduct of the wife and be one to Christ as a result. So we talked a lot back then about the value and the impact of a godly wife, right? Wives, are, wives have great value on this earth. They have great strengths and great abilities. I encourage you, if you weren't here, to listen to that teaching on our webpage called A Virtuous Woman. Okay. Then in verse 7, we see some instructions for husbands. It says, Husbands, likewise dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of this life, that your prayers may not be hindered. So a man that is a husband is to dwell with his wife with understanding. 
A husband should know his wife better than anyone else does. She should be able to come to him with the things that are meaningful to her. According to God's word here, the wife is the weaker vessel, and she is to be treated as such in a very delicate, very loving, very understanding manner. Okay, So a lot of good meat, a lot of good practical living stuff within this letter here. Then as we jump down to verse 10, there is some advice given to all of us. And it says, for he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. So do you want to love your life? Do you want to see good days? Keep quiet. Keep your words to yourself. Turn away. Walk on, right? Sometimes to pursue peace, you have to avoid those that are not pursuing peace. Because ultimately, again, we know the Lord is in control. And He is watching over everything we say and do. Look at verse 12. It tells us, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? So if you are living in a righteous manner, you're allowing the grace of God to teach you to to live righteously and soberly, and you are pursuing peace, and you're turning away from evil and those that do evil, then the eyes of the Lord are upon you, and he hears your prayers, and there will be no harm done to you. Then in verse 14, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Now, Jesus told us that we will suffer for his name's sake. But what we are to do, though, is like We read there, sanctify the Lord God in our hearts. And by so doing, we can impact others in a positive way. They they will look at us and they will marvel at the fact that we keep on pressing on even through trials. And with meekness and reverence, we give them an answer and we let them know that it's the Lord God and it's the Lord God alone that gives me my strength. He's the one that gets me through each and every day. Now, again, I'm just doing a brief review here of this entire epistle. So let's jump ahead now to chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourself yourselves also with the same mind for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men but for the will of God so again the point being made here is very clear live for God not for this world not for the lust of your flesh pursue peace in your life pursue righteousness in your life pursue holiness and avoid everything that is contrary to living in this manner. Verse 3 tells us that we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. 
Again, who are the Gentiles? The non-believers, right? And verse 4 indicates that we don't hang out with those people anymore. It says they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. So as I said many times before, you will not win any popularity contest in this world by turning to Jesus Christ. Okay? They will disown you in a heartbeat if you get born again. Now, on the other hand, if you keep behaving as they do, all the while you profess to be a Christian, but you behave as they do, they'll keep running with you, but you will be known as a hypocrite. And verse 5 tells us what will happen to the non-believer. It says they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And then in verse 7, we see where it says, But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And we talked about last week how the word serious there means to be of sound mind and to curb your passions. So in this epistle, we are strongly urged to put aside living for the lust of our flesh and our own passions and our own desires. We're being encouraged to put that aside. So the lust of the flesh, though, like I said, it includes material things, money, cars, houses, recreational things, anything that you place a high value on and you put it above your relationship with the Lord. You know, it's that person who James talks about in his letter there when he says, go to you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such city, we'll buy, sell, get gain. And he says, no, no, what you ought to be saying is if it be the Lord's will, we will live and do such and such, right? So it's a matter of priorities. It's a matter of, again, seeking first the kingdom of God, making that your priority, right? Because when we talk about things like money and cars and houses and things like that, these things are not bad, we, but we are to live a modest lifestyle. And we are to be a people that is dedicated to using our wealth and our abundance for the kingdom of God and spreading the gospel. But we are to be serious, sober-minded, and watchful in our prayers, realizing that, like we've seen here, these indeed are the last days. And Peter will address the last days in his next letter, in the second epistle, right? Then down in verse 11, it says, If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability with which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You see, keep in mind, folks, God does not want you to do that which you are not gifted to do. It says right there in verse 11, let him do it as with the ability with which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So just do the things that you know you can do within the body of Christ. And don't make the mistake of ignoring the gifts that you do have. Keep in mind that in whatever you do, God is to be glorified. 
But again, there are all kinds of instructions on how we are to live written down for us in this first letter of Peter's here. And a key verse for us to understand is down in verse 17. Here where it says, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. So we must look within. We must examine ourselves as to whether we are living in the faith or not. We are the house of God. We as individuals make up the body of Christ. And these are the last days. And now we come to chapter 5. And Peter, again, is now closing this letter. And in verse 1, he says, The elders who are among you, I exhort. So stop right there. Who is Peter addressing now? The elders. Older, more seasoned men within the body of Christ. These men have stepped up into leadership roles. Peter goes on to say in verse 1, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. So Peter says here, this is who I am. I am a fellow elder. Okay, I am a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. So first of all, Peter doesn't really consider himself to be above anyone else. He's a fellow elder, right? He considers himself that, right? He's not the Pope. He's not the founder of a church, okay? Speaking of Jesus, Colossians says that he is the head of the body, the church. First Timothy says, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. So Peter understood who he really was, Right. He was a yes, he was a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And he knows that one day he will, just like every other believer, be a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. But he is a fellow elder right alongside of all the guys of that time that we don't read about in our Bibles. And in verse two, he exhorts these elders to shepherd the flock of God, which is among you. Serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. So he tells them there to serve as an overseer. That word overseer is the Greek word episkopeo, right? And that's a word that means to look upon, inspect, oversee, look after, care for. Okay? So to look upon, inspect, oversee, look after, and care for. This is a job of the elder in the church. Now, there's no two ways around this, but the fact is, is that that word elder simply means, no matter how you study it, when you look it up, it means elder of age. It speaks to the age of a person not necessarily the position as most organized churches today understand it. Now, don't get me wrong here. Being an elder is indeed in a position, but it is a position that comes about as the result of maturity. 
right? Each and every man within the body of Christ, each and every man that has been born again should grow to a place of maturity where they can now oversee others. Most men today in the body of Christ remain complacent in this area because they sit around and they let a select few do the work of an elder. But in a way, this is kind of a a catch-22 for the men of the body of Christ today because churches today are run more like businesses and they have established these paid or at least stipend positions of leadership. And what this does is it excludes many other qualified men within the body of Christ and it narrows down the field of opportunity and it makes people complacent. Because they just sit around and say, well, he's doing it. And if I go to that church, well, they're already doing it. And if I go to that church, well, they're already doing it. There's nothing for me to do within the body of Christ. Okay, But that's not the way it it is to be. See, we need to recognize here that the body of Christ in the early days did not operate as churches do today. They had no problem with being spread out, right? They, they lived in and amongst the people, but they gathered from house to house. They were not in competition with one another, as many elders and slash pastors are today. They could care less if there was another Bible study right three houses down. They wanted that. They wanted that. They wanted the gospel to spread because the word of God was alive in the lives of the early believers. And they did not care to be exclusive in any way, shape or form. There were many elders, many overseers in each and every city. Okay, the body of Christ would be more effective on the earth today if we had more mature believers step up and begin to serve as elders in their communities. Unfortunately, though, we are very steeped in the ways of what I call churchianity today, okay? Where we've built our churches, right, again to the exclusion of many, and this is a cause for the weakness and the ineffectiveness of the body of Christ today. And I encourage you know, men to step up and to step out by faith and serve as elders in the body of Christ. Okay? You don't need a building. You don't need a large following. You just need you know, a willingness to be obedient to the word of the Lord. So again, Peter tells them in verse 2 here to shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. So very detailed instructions here on being an overseer. An elder is not above the flock and should never act as if he is. This today is a slippery slope for many that call themselves leaders in the body of Christ. Because the role is presented to them as a position and it goes to their head. And 
and they, they begin to run things as if they are a CEO rather than a servant, right? Their minds begin to get distracted by things such as church growth, building projects, and they forget about souls, and they forget that they're called to the people, and they begin to lord their position over the heads of the rest of the body of Christ as if they are in some way above them, right? When all their role really is is to look upon and care for those that have been entrusted to them. And then Peter continues in verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. You see, that should be the goal of the elder, the older, mature man that has stepped up to serve in the body of Christ. His goal should be that he is living like the chief shepherd wants him to live. Okay. Now, let me just quickly remind you of something here that ties into what I'm teaching you here from God's Word. Let's just mark this page and, and uh, just real quickly turn to chapter 2 here again in verse Peter. First Peter chapter 2. And let's look down at verse 25. It says, For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So you see, that's who Jesus is. Okay? He is the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. So as we flip back again now to chapter 5, verse 4 mentions Jesus as the chief shepherd again. And we know that he is the chief shepherd and the overseer of our souls. And the elders, right, the mature men in the body of Christ are to simply be examples of him, of Jesus Christ. So again, this is the, the role of mature men in the body of Christ. And now Peter is going to shift his focus here to the younger men. And he says in verse 5, likewise, you younger people. Okay, so that's how we know that when he says elder, he's talking about older person, not a position, right? Why? Because when we get to verse 5, he says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. So look, we have seen a lot about submission in this first letter of Peter's here, haven't we? Older men submitting to Christ, wives submitting to husbands, younger people submitting to elders. And all of this requires what? It requires humility, like verse 5 says there, right? In order to be submissive, in these things, we must be clothed with humility. Why? Because it's never easy in our fleshly nature to be submissive. Pride wells up, right, within us, and we refuse to submit. But there is one very strong fact in Scripture, 
And we see it there at the end of verse 5, and that is that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. But verse 6 gives us the answer there to this pride and says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Verse 7, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Now that's an often quoted verse of Scripture right there, isn't it? Cast all of your care upon Him, for He cares for you. But this Scripture comes right on the heels of talking about submission and humility. There is, or at least should be, elders in the body of Christ, men that have matured to a place where they are able to oversee and care for the souls of others in a godly, biblical manner. And these men are to be submissive to the chief shepherd and overseer of their souls. These men should understand that the body of Christ was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. These men would never lord their position over others and act as if they have control because these men have matured in the word of God and they are to be as verse 8 says sober be vigilant because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion lion seeking whom he may devour resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. You see, there is an enemy to the body of Christ. There is an enemy to anyone that steps up and says, I'm going to live for Jesus. I'm submitting my life to him. And I'm going to live in accordance with his word. When a wife steps up and says, I'm going to be submissive to my husband, Satan comes in and brings pride and finds all kind of little reasons to say, don't submit to that guy. Look at him. But, but we submit because of obedience to the word of God, right? So there is an enemy to you as an individual of the body of Christ. It is the devil, and he is actively seeking whom he may devour, like it says right there. He wants to tear up that person that says, yep, I'm going to commit to Christ. He's going to bring all kinds of thing in, things in, right? Picture in your head a lion on the prowl, right? He's pacing back and forth, to and fro, and he's looking for that opportunity to pounce, right? And that's what the devil is. He's looking for that opportunity to do that in your life when you commit your life to Jesus Christ and you're committed to living in accordance with your word. He is tempting you as an individual. He is tempting the elder in the body of Christ with pride. He's telling you that you're the big man. You're the big woman. You are in control. Right? You are over all these people. Right? You're not submissive to anyone. And this happens each and every day. People forget that there is a body of Christ, that there's many members, there's many people gifted within the body of Christ. And people forget that Jesus is the chief shepherd. shepherd. He is the overseer. And Satan looks for these opportunities to destroy people. He looks for these opportunities to destroy the body of Christ. And it all starts with pride. It all starts with someone not humbling themselves and admitting, hey, 
I'm a fellow elder just like you. I can fall. I can fall into sin today. I am weak. There's no strength in me whatsoever. And when people don't admit that and they, they allow themselves to be put on that pedestal, then they're open for that roaring lion to just dis destroy them, right? So it's not easy, right? The devil is on the prowl. You will be attacked if you step up in the body of Christ, but you must resist and not give in, right? You resist the devil. You don't give in. And this is hard to do at times, but the grace of God is with you. And Peter says in verse 10, but may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. So you see, this is what the grace of God will do in your life if you keep going. You stay the course, right? It will perfect you. The word perfect there doesn't mean, as we often understand the word to mean to be perfect, to be flawless, right? It actually means to make someone sound and complete. This is what God's grace is doing in us in the midst of our sufferings here on this earth. He is rendering us fit, sound, and complete. That word established there in verse 10 means to make stable, place firmly, set fast, fix. Okay? To make stable, place firmly, set fast, fix. Again, this is the work that God, by His grace, desires to do within us. But I'll remind you one more time that it requires humility. It requires humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God that He can lift us up. And when we think we don't need anything, or we think, I get along just fine, I've got along fine all these years without God, without the Bible, without this, that's pride. Right? God can't do a work in your life. Okay? But God will do this work in us to strengthen us. But again, if we are proud and we think we're strong in ourselves, if, if we think that our position is a position of power, then God indeed will resist us. And His work of perfecting, His work of establishing, His, worth, His work of strengthening will never take effect in our lives. Because as verse 11 says, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You see, Jesus is the only Lord. He is Lord of all. We are the body of Christ. He is the great shepherd and overseer of our souls. All power, all dominion, all glory are his forever and ever. Amen. And again, that person that steps up within the body of Christ to serve the Lord will be attacked because the, the devil roams around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But that person is to humble themselves under the mighty hand of God and realize that if God uses me, that's all to his glory. Because who am I? I'm nothing. I'm no one. Right? And then in verse 12, through verse 14, Peter closes out this letter by saying, 
By Sylvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. She who is in Babylon, elect, together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. So, very clear who Peter addressed this letter to. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. And we've seen, we've learned so much in this letter that how we get to be in Christ by being born again through the Word of God, right, which endures forever. We see how we are to conduct our lives in a holy manner. We are to live in righteousness, right? We are to humble ourselves. We are to be obedient to the Word of God. And we'll go ahead and study Second Peter beginning next week if the Lord tarries and it be his will. But let's pray and we'll close today. Father God in heaven, again we thank you for your word, your powerful, mighty word, Lord, that does a work within us that no other words can do. Lord, we understand that you are the chief shepherd. You are the overseer of our souls. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, and that is you, Jesus Christ, and you alone. We understand, Lord, that apart from you, we can do nothing, but we can do all things through Christ, which strengthens us. So we must humble ourselves and submit to your will and commit our hearts and our minds to your word, Lord that we may grow in the grace and in the knowledge of you, that we, we may desire the milk of the word, that we may grow thereby, but that also, Lord, we will mature in the word and that we will be more than just forgetful hearers, but we will be doers of your word, doers of all the things that we see so plain and clear in your word here, Lord. Even as we sung today, Lord, pour out your spirit, Lord. Pour out your spirit upon us that we may live this life to glorify your holy name in all we say and do. We just thank you for this time again. In Jesus' name, amen.